forgot. Hey, grab your Bibles and open them up to Mark. We are back into the book of Mark, which I am excited about. So go ahead and stand. And Catherine's going to come up and read this morning's passage for us. So go ahead and stand to your feet. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. There you go, Catherine. Good morning. Reading from Mark 8, starting verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets, And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. Thank you. You guys can be seated. Thanks, Catherine. Father, this is your word. It's the word that you gave us. Lord, we don't take it lightly. Lord, this, this, this book, this library of books in our hands that we hold, Father, we just stop to acknowledge its prophetic nature, its authority over our lives. Lord, that that each and every word that was chosen to go into this book was chosen by you. That your spirit was guiding the process. Lord, we stop and acknowledge that there is something here that you want us to see this morning. That through the authorship of John Mark, under the eyewitness account of the apostle Peter, that there is something here, Spirit of God, that you want us to see this morning. That there is something here that you want us to feel this morning. There is something 
here that you want us to apply and believe this morning. So God, would you give us vision and insight into your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, time and years of living have a way of changing your perspective, don't they? Amen. Thank you. Uh, remember when I was a kid, we lived, I think I was five, and we lived um, in Lincoln City. In fact, we lived in a little place called Otis, uh, outside of Lincoln City, just a tiny little neighborhood. And we lived in this, this mobile home, and, and next to the mobile home was this massive woods Acres and acres and acres of woods. And as I was a little five-year-old kid, I would just get lost in this woods and just explore and, and make forts and all of this kind of stuff. It was this amazing childhood thing. And then some years later, we went back to visit that house just to, to drive by. And do you ever do that? Your houses you used to live in do a drive-by, and you're like, oh, I remember that tree. Uh, yeah. Uh, it wasn't a big woods. It was like 100 square feet. <laughs> I mean, it was, like, it was like a lot. It was tiny. It really wasn't very big at all. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't even remember how big exactly it is, but it was very small. And I just remember thinking, how weird is that? I mean, I remember this place being giant, right? Time has a way of changing the way you view things, doesn't it? Uh, another analogy, maybe, uh, when I was in high school, I was super cool. <laughs> super cool. I remember one time, I thought it would be cool to try to wear two different kinds of shoes at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I grew my hair long. It was in my face. Um, and I wore really small clothes, because that was cool, too. Um, and my friends were cool. And everybody thought I was cool. And I was in this really famous band that was huge. And we toured around the, all over. Yeah, it, none of that was true. But you know what? It felt really true in high school. I, I felt like everyone thought I was cool. And my, my friends thought I was cool. And my friends were cool. And the way I dressed was cool. And I look back at pictures, and I shudder. Right? I'm like, oh, that was so painful. Was I thinking, right? Now, what changed? Well, nothing changed. My perspective changed. My lens changed. Time and life have a way of changing the way that we view things in life. The reality is I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, even though uh, I look back at those things and I cringe, I'm thankful for them, right? Because they made me who I am. God used those things. Super thankful for that. Now, I would imagine that the apostle Peter who um, was, by the way, the eyewitness account for the Gospel of Mark. He was the source for the author Mark. Um, I would imagine that Peter is cringy when he is telling the details of some of the stories in the Gospels. You know what I mean? Like, I can imagine, like, he's telling Mark about the time he pulled Jesus aside. We're going to read about it this morning. We just heard it read, where he pulls Jesus aside to lecture him. He's going, oh, that, that felt like a really good idea at the time. Or the time we're going to read about next week where they go up the hill and Jesus shares his glory with them. And Jesus is like, hey, I got an idea. Let's make three tents and camp here forever, right? And then the glory of the Lord leaves and the Father shows up. And, and, and it's, it's like Peter was like, oh, that seemed like a really good idea in the moment. But now looking back, I see that that was really stupid, right? Or the time that, that Peter said, I'll never deny you, Lord. And then he does three times, right? So you can just imagine, like, Peter, as he's giving the details, and he does give the details of his failures, that um, he would be a little bit kind of ashamed of this. But, you know, the good news is that Peter's perspective changed. It didn't stay the way that we read about it in the Gospels. Peter grew up. He grew up in the Lord. And fortunately, we have recorded for us the reality of Peter's blindness, because if we didn't, then you and I would think there was something wrong with us. 
But fortunately, we see Peter and his blunders and his, his tripping over his words and his, his things, and we go, oh, thank you. There's hope for me, right? But here's the question. How did Peter go from being so thick that he would uh, literally be a coward in the courtyard how did he go from being someone who would reject Jesus, who would rebuke Jesus, would be so confused, always saying the wrong thing, um, a coward in the courtyard, like I said, how did he go from that to being the Peter who preached to thousands at Pentecost and saw thousands come to believe in the gospel with boldness? The Peter who church history at least tells us was crucified upside down, right? Because he didn't want to uh, be crucified the same way as his Lord. He was so bold, how did the Peter that rebukes Jesus in our passage, the Peter who fumbles over things and rejects Jesus three times, end up becoming the Peter that we read about later in his ministry? What was the change? Well, I would suggest it was his sight. It was his perspective. He started to see things differently. Kind of like me in the, the little woods area when I was a kid. Like Things start to look different as... Time kind of passes. Listen to what Peter said later in his life, 1 Peter 4.13. He said these words. Again, remember, this is the same Peter that rejected or uh, cowardly denied to know, knowing Jesus in the courtyard outside of the high priest's house. He says in 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's a very different Peter. What's the change? What made the change? This morning, we're going to talk about sight. We're going to talk about seeing. Our passage, all of it this morning, really centers around this topic of seeing. How do we see? And what we're going to learn this morning is that sight uh, is not always all come at once. Sometimes it comes in a process. Sometimes it's a process of seeing. First, we're going to see a physically blind man who's given sight by Jesus in stages. And then we're going to see the spiritually blind disciple who is given sight by Jesus in stages. This is what ties our text together. There's some really interesting material we're going to look at this morning. Uh, one of the most devastating peak and valley moments for Peter. You are the Christ. Wow, good job. And then he gets called Satan. Okay, all in the same day. So that's a bad day, right? Um, we do this thing in my house at the end of the day where we say, what's the best and worst, what's the best and worst part of your day, right? And, and so, G, so Peter, that'd be easy for him that day. Best part was when I nailed that Jesus is the Christ. Woo! Worst part, Jesus said I was Satan. Oh, talk about a peak and a valley, okay? Um, something is going on there. We're also going to see one of the most bizarre sequences of miracles that we ever really see in the New Testament. Uh, it's super unique because Jesus has to heal twice. It's like one wasn't good enough. He had to do it again. Okay, we'll see that. That's kind of intriguing. And we're going to see one of the most clear and explicit descriptions of what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple, what that actually looks like. So we're going to break this into four scenes. There's basically four scenes here, if you think about this like a movie. Uh, scene one, we're going to see uh, the calculated characterization in verse 22 through 26. Then we're going to see the confession of the crown, 27 to 30. We're going to see the confusion of the cross, 31 to 33, and the call to the cruciform community. And I'll give those to you again as we go if you're trying to write those down. So first... Let's take a look at verse 22, the calculated characterization. 22, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. 
And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Why is Jesus leading the blind man out of the village to heal him? It's because Jesus is no longer going to give any more miraculous acts to Bethsaida. Jesus has pronounced judgment on Bethsaida. He says, woe to you, Bethsaida, Capernaum, these cities that had the lion's share of Jesus' miracles. He said, I'm not going to do any more to entertain you. If I'm going to do a miracle for this blind man, it's going to be for him, not for you. And I'm going to take him out of town, away from you guys. So he does that. And when he had spit on his eyes, okay, now that's kind of offensive, right? It doesn't say he spat and put the spit on his eyes. What does it say? He spat on his eyes. Okay? And this guy's blind, so he can't even, he doesn't even have a minute to react. He's just like, what was that? That's a weird thing. Okay, no, we don't know why he does that. I'm not even going to tell you. I'm not even going to guess. He laid his hands on him, and he asked him, this is a very important question. Note this. This will tie our passage together. Do you see anything? And he looked up, the blind man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, this tells us that this man clearly could see at some point because he knows what trees look like. He knows what people look like. Uh, he says, I can see, but it's blurry. Something's not right. It, I, it, it's, it's, just not, it's not as it should be. I see in part, right? I see partially. So this is kind of funny, really. I mean, it, Jesus is clearly up to something, but it's almost like, was Jesus like, ah, dang it. You know, I, I said the wrong thing. I got to say it. No, like Jesus knows what he's doing. There's something going on here. So verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Note those words. And he sent him home, or to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Now, what are we supposed to make with this? This is one of those, I don't know if you guys, like you're, you're reading your devotions in the morning, you'll come across this and you're like, huh? Why did he have to do it twice? Did Jesus mess up? Like, what's the deal? Uh, not to, not to, to, to go too into conjecture here, but, but I think most commentators, most people that have studied the book of Mark see that Mark has placed this story right where it is on purpose as an allegory to illustrate the reality of what's going on with the disciples. See, the disciples, they keep having these little moments of clarity, which those moments of clarity instantly get overtaken by blindness. And it seems like Mark has placed this story here for us to be an illustration of what's going on in the spiritual reality of the disciples' growth and maturity. They need another touch. They need another healing. They're not getting it. They're still missing it. If you remember, we were just jumping back into Mark. We've been out for three weeks. But if you remember, time and time again, Jesus presents these, these amazing truths, and the disciples continue to be blind. He feeds uh, the, the crowd, and they miss the point. He walks on water, and they miss the point. He feeds a crowd again, and they miss the point. They see partially, but they don't see in whole. And so I think this story is meant to embody for us what we're going to see happen with the disciples. Now, this is just a side note, but there's just a couple of things I'd like you to think about in regards to this passage when it comes to healing. Some of you guys are waiting for healing in your life. Some of you guys are dealing with chronic illness. Some of you guys have people that you love that are sick. And there's some things that this story reminds us of, and I just want to remind you of them really quickly. Number one, Jesus almost never heals people in the same way. Every person, he has a different story, okay? Um, this is a unique miracle that Jesus had for this man in particular. Secondly, Jesus' healing is about more than just you. Whether Jesus heals or Jesus chooses not to heal or whether Jesus heals in a particular or curious or odd way, sometimes, oftentimes, is more about someone else 
than you. And we need to remember that. We need to zoom out and say, Lord, why are you allowing this? Why are you doing this? Well, remember, God may be doing something bigger than just you, bigger than just what you're experiencing. And one last thing, just this is just a side note here. Jesus' choice to heal in stages was not accidental. Okay? It was not accidental. Why am I saying that? Because you are being healed in stages. Theologians call it the already not yet. You've been healed spiritually. You will be healed. Absolutely, believer. You will be healed in the eschaton, in the end of all things, when you are given your new body. And right now it feels like, well, why not now, Lord? Why not now? Why not just a new body now? And the answer is that sometimes God heals in stages. And he has a reason. He has a purpose. And here, the purpose is God is trying to teach something to the disciples and something to you and I about the process of seeing, the process of healing. Moving on now. Now, we're going to see the substance of the allegory played out in true dramatic fashion. Now, I want you to note something here, uh, kind of a Bible student point here. Uh, that What we're about to read, the next five verses, is the structural center to the book of Mark. Any of you that have studied first century literature know that the center of a book is of utmost importance. Everything is sort of pointing at the center of the book. So what we're about to read right now, we're about to look at this moment Jesus is going to have with his disciples is really the climax, is really the main deal of what Mark's been driving at um, this whole time in his gospel. So it's important is what I'm trying to say. Verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. There's a lot we could say about that place. I just don't have time, and Mark doesn't seem to think it's important, so we're going to move on from that. Um, On the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, here's what Jesus is asking. He's saying, hey, guys, let's let's take a moment, and let's just consider what the common um, view is of who I am. You ever see that show, Family Feud? You know that? Where they, they like they pull people and they say, okay, what are the top five? What, what what are the top five answers for you know what do you have for breakfast or whatever you know Captain Crunch ding number three okay so this is kind of what's happening here so Jesus is like hey guys what's the pulse of the day what's the pulse of the culture what are people saying about me what are the top answers that's what he's asking them and they answer number one John the Baptist that's the main thing apparently that people think Jesus is at this point John the Baptist. Number two, Elijah, okay? Number three, some other prophet. Notice what's not listed, Messiah. Now, did they not think Jesus could be Messiah? They certainly thought he could be Messiah. They certainly had hoped that Jesus was Messiah. So why isn't that listed among one of the things that most people think about him? The answer is because Jesus has short-circuited what they thought Messiah was going to do. He's done everything the opposite of what they thought Messiah was going to do. They're expecting a Davidic military, militaristic uh, regime change where Jesus is going to come in with fire and power and he's going to overthrow Pilate and Caesar and free Israel from the, the captive hands of occupation. This is what they're expecting. They're expecting power and what they're seeing is someone who keeps saying he's going to die who keeps saying weird things, who's been rejected by the religious establishment. All 70 of the Sanhedrin, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees have rejected, systematically rejected Jesus. So the crowds are looking at Jesus and they're going, he's clearly sent from God, but he's not what we think he should be. Therefore, he must be something else. 
And this is important for us because it helps us understand what people were thinking about Jesus. It helps us understand why Jesus is increasingly more and more sharp in his contrast of what it looks like to believe him and follow him because people are missing the point. They're missing the point. Herod thought John the Baptist had come back and it was Jesus, remember? He was terrified that his demons were coming to haunt him because he took John the Baptist's head. Uh, Elijah, Malachi chapter 3, tells us Elijah's going to come back before the Messiah. So they, they think, well, maybe this is Elijah. What's the point? The point is all of these people, John the Baptist, Elijah, prophets, they're all forerunners. They're all preparatory work. They're all people that are coming before the Messiah. None of them seem to think that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, here's the real test. Here's the real test. By the way, actually, side note, it's good to know what people think about Jesus in our culture, right? It's good to know. It's good to be aware. The Mormons have a view. Islam has a view. Secularism has a view. National Geographic magazine has a view. Jesus was a historical figure that people made God later, okay? We need to know those things. And just because a majority of culture thinks something about Jesus doesn't make it right, right? But here's where the question gets real. Then Jesus turns to the guys and he says, okay, enough of talking about the world's position. What's your position? Now, this is a test moment for these guys. It's been two years. They've been walking with Jesus for two years. They've had unrestricted access to this rabbi. And after two years, Jesus says, okay, guys, test time, pop quiz. Who do you say that I am? Probably the most important question you, friends, will ever answer. (laughs) Who am I? Who do you say that I am? And Jesus has been fairly, he's been fairly nebulous about this, actually. He calls himself the son of man purposely to allude to this Daniel chapter 7 figure, not really sure what to make of that. Jesus has been a little bit nebulous. And so now it's test time. Who do you say that I am? And who do you think pipes up to answer that question? Peter the piper, right? Peter pipes up to answer the question. He's the guy that's going to represent the group. And uh, Peter does, I can so relate with Peter. I'm a silence filler. If there's silence... I will fill it, and I almost always regret it, right? I can't remember a lot of times where there was silence, and I filled it, and I didn't regret it. I usually say something stupid, um, and, and, and it's just the way that I am. So Peter's like that. There's a silence. Peter blurts out something, and he says, you are Christ. And I can imagine Peter being like, right? You know? And Jesus is like, ding, you got it. You got it. You are the Christ. Now, what's interesting is Mark doesn't actually know Jesus telling him whether he got it right or wrong. He just says, you're the Christ, and then he moves on. There's a lot more to this story, by the way, that we don't have time to get into. If you want to read its counterpart in Mark or Matthew chapter 16, there's some serious Christology here. So in Matthew's account, Peter actually says, you're Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, blessed are you, Simon. You didn't get this. The Holy Spirit revealed this to you. Um, and then he says some crazy things. He says, uh, he says, uh, on this proclamation, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you unleash on earth, you unleash in heaven. Uh, Peter's just like, whoa, you nailed it, buddy. Good job. Crazy. What's so funny is that Mark doesn't focus on any of that. Mark doesn't even say that Jesus gave him an attaboy, which is funny when you consider that Mark's source is who? Peter. You'd think if there was any gospel that really made Peter look good, it'd be Mark's gospel. You know what's funny about Mark's gospel? It makes Peter look really bad. Because Peter wasn't interested in making much of himself. 
So what's Mark's point here? It isn't to give a high Christology like Matthew's gospel is. It isn't to give us these interesting insights into what the church age will look like and what the foundation of the church will be. Um, The emphasis of Mark's gospel rather is to focus on the blindness of Peter, which we will now see in verse 31. So in this moment where Peter answers the question correctly, Jesus goes, you know what? I think these guys are getting it. Maybe now it's the right time to share with them the most intimate, the most important, the most heavy, the most sorrowful reality that is in the forefront of my mind, Jesus would say, which is the cross. See, Jesus had been carrying the cross this whole time. Not physically, but he'd been carrying it. Any of you guys that have ever been through immense traumatic things where you're just dreading something, you know something's coming, you carry it. It's running in the back of your mind at all times. You know it's coming. Jesus has been carrying, like, like pictured from in, in Frodo in, in, in the, the Lord of the Rings, the weight is increasing. The closer he gets to the mountain, the more the weight increases. Jesus is carrying this weight, and he knows that his guys are selectively choosing not to believe in this idea that he's going to die. And he's been waiting for the right time to really get this idea into their heads. Hey, guys, I have to die. And so he thinks maybe in this moment where Peter is finally getting it, where they're finally understanding you are the Christ, they get the crown thing right, maybe now he can reveal the cross to them and they'll, they'll get it. So Jesus does this. Verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, that is Jesus, must, note that word, must, note it, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days, rise again. Now, Mark says, 32, he said this plainly. There's no mistaking what Jesus is saying. This isn't an illustration. This isn't an allegory. This isn't a parable. This isn't a riddle. Jesus is plain as day. I am going to be rejected by the establishment. I am going to be crucified on a cross. I am going to rise again in three days. Jesus couldn't have been more plain, could he have? He's very clear. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he's inviting his disciples into his path of pain. He's inviting his disciples to share this burden with him. The same thing that he tried to do in the garden. Remember when Jesus was about to sweat drops of blood, anticipating the cross, and he said, hey, could you come pray with me? And they couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. They just, they just failed. Anytime the cross was brought up, they just failed, right? So Jesus is presenting this painful reality to them. Why? Because he's trying to prepare them for this moment. It's coming. He wants them to be ready. The shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. He's trying to prepare them for their own cross, the fact that they too will have to pick up a cross. Just a side note here, by the way. Don't ever waste your pain. Jesus didn't waste an ounce of his pain. He said, hey guys, come here. You need to see. You need to see what it looks like for me to suffer because you're going to suffer and I want you to do it the way I did it. Don't waste your pain. Invite believers into your pain. Let them see the cross that you're carrying. Now, why must Jesus suffer? You notice that? It says must. He must suffer. He must suffer, listen, because there's no crown without the cross. 
There is no crown without the cross. He must go to the cross. Before, the Je- before Jesus' kingdom can come militarily and physically, it must first be bought and purchased redemptively and regeneratively. Otherwise, Jesus is going to be ruling a sinful world. We see that in the millennial reign, right? Jesus sets up um, a shop. He becomes the administration in a world that has not been yet born again. And they still fight against him. He must go to the cross. He must go to the cross. Because if he doesn't go to the cross, then sin is not defeated. If he doesn't go to the cross, then we are still dead in our trespasses and sins. Death is still our victor. We are still living in a broken and sinful world. There is nothing left but judgment for this world. But because Jesus went to the cross, now there is freedom. See, these guys just don't get this. They don't understand this. Why do they not understand this? They don't understand it because they don't see sin as their chief enemy. They see Rome as their chief enemy. They don't see that they need to be re-reconciled with a perfect and righteous and holy creator God. They think that they need to be set free from oppression. They are missing. They're nearsighted. Their eyes are blurry. They're seeing people, but they look like trees. They see the cross, but it looks like a crown. They can't get their head around the fact that suffering is part of God's plan. They can't get their head around it. They love the idea of the crown, but what is this cross in between? I don't understand it. Can we go around it? I don't like it. They don't see death as their greatest enemy. They don't see reconciliation to God and propitiation for sin as their greatest need. They're confused. They're confused by why the the, the chief priests are rejecting Jesus. Malachi 3 says Elijah will come and gather the hearts of Israel. What's with that? They're confused. They're confused why the Son of Man, this powerful figure in Daniel 7, is going to suffer. See, they're not looking at Isaiah 53, where we read about the suffering servant. They're looking at Daniel 7, and they're confused. They're nearsighted. Their sight has not been made whole. Now, Peter hears this, and I don't know what he's thinking to himself, but it probably goes something like this. Man, Jesus has been drinking his own bathwater. He's confused. He doesn't understand. You know, he's our rabbi, but man, he's off on this part. We know better. You know, Peter's probably thinking, you know, Jesus, I don't want to embarrass you in front of the guy, so so I'm going to pull you aside. Hey, Jesus, can we talk for a minute? Can we have a minute over here? They walk 10 feet or so away from the disciples. And, you know, the disciples are doing this thing. They're, like, pretending like they're not listening. You know, probably pulling their phone out, like, pretending like they're texting. You guys don't do that, right? You're at a restaurant. You're pretending not to listen to the very interesting conversation next to you, right? Or you plug your headphones in, but you don't push play. You ever do that? Okay. Um, Am I the only one? Okay. So, so Peter pulls Jesus aside to try to help him out. And, and the disciples are listening over here. And Peter pulls him aside. And he's going to rebuke Jesus. I bet you he thought real hard about doing this. No, he didn't think hard about it. It was just the first thing it felt right to do in the moment. Jesus has got to be wrong. There can't be a cross between the crown. Jesus, can we talk? Pulls him aside. And, you know, Peter has got some fresh confidence right now, right? He's keys to the kingdom, Peter. You know, foundation of the church, Peter. Nailed the test, Peter. Leader of the disciples, spokesman. Walked on water, Peter. That's me. Hey, Jesus, let me give you some pointers. Okay? Don't ever do that. (laughs) Stupid. Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke him. It's a strong word, by the way. 
It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't a hint. It was a rebuke. Now, I want you to notice this. But turning, Jesus turning, he's talking to Peter. The disciples are over here. Jesus turning and sees the disciples. And why, why does it note that? It notes it because Mark wants us to see that Jesus is aware that the disciples are listening. Remember the leaven? Remember the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod? Remember Peter? Uh, Jesus said, uh, beware of this leaven. It's growing within you. The leaven of the Herod and Pharisees, this leaven of unbelief had been growing in Peter. It had grown in Judas, we know that, and it's beginning to grow to the disciples. And Jesus is aware of it, and so he's going to nip it in the bud. The time is now to put this lie to the death. Same lie, by the way, that Satan tried to get Jesus with in the wilderness. Skip the, crown, skip the cross, go straight to the crown. This is satanic in origin. So, 33, turning and seeing the disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine how low Peter is feeling in this moment? Now, Peter's not saying he is Satan. What is he saying? He's saying you are being controlled by Satan. You are being influenced by Satan. And then he says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of who? Man. Satanic think, people think. You are influenced, Peter. You've been influenced. Your sight has been skewed by the enemy and by the world. You're not getting this thinking from the Lord. You're getting this thinking from apostate teachers like the Pharisees, from the common view of the, of the day, and from Satan himself. Brutal. Jesus has to be harsh because he has to stop this thinking in its tracks. Now, just a side note here. Our maturity as believers is not measured by our ability to give the right theological answer. Because Peter just did that, right? I mean, as Christians, we think this, right? We think I'm mature because I've gone to church and I know the answers. Ask me a question, I'll tell you. The answer is always Jesus, right? Okay. Peter's maturity is not measured here by his ability to say you are the Christ. His maturity is measured by what he does when Jesus says hard stuff is coming, buddy. That's how his maturity is measured. Man, sometimes I feel good about myself, you know, when I know theological things. And then something really hard will come into my path and I react very immaturely. And rather than seeing God as providential and seeing God's hand working in these things, I, I, I lash out like Peter does here, and I rebuke the Lord. Our maturity is measured in our willingness to surrender to God's providential plan. And oftentimes, in fact, I would say every time, that plan, listen, that plan has a cross. It's got a cross in it. We don't like that. This becomes, this section now we're going to look at becomes the first in three sequences where Mark shows the disciples getting it completely wrong about the Messiah, and that launches Jesus into teaching about what a disciple is. Isn't that interesting? Three times in a row, the disciples miss the point about the Messiah, and Jesus says, now it's time to talk about discipleship. What's the link there? What's the connection there? One commentator, Edwards, he says this. He says, a wrong view of messiahship leads to a, long, a wrong view of discipleship. 
If we get who Jesus is wrong, we're going to get what it looks like to follow Jesus wrong. If we think Jesus is just there for the crown and that Jesus doesn't have a cross, we're going to miss what it looks like to be disciples. And I actually think that's very true of the Western evangelical church right now. Because we've gotten it so wrong about who Jesus is, we've gotten it wrong about what we're called to do. One of those things is eliminating any kind of suffering from our theological framework. Suffering is baked into every fiber of what it means to be a Christian. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus suffered immensely. So we come to scene four, the call to the cruciform community, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him. Now Jesus says, I want to talk to everybody now. Everybody come on in. I want to talk to everybody, the disciples and the crowd And he said to them, now listen to this, this is very important. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus wants to make it very clear. Hey, listen, once and for all, I want everyone to know this is what it means to be my disciple. Jesus has been successfully shrinking his ministry for for two years. Isn't that great? (laughs) We think of a ministry shrinking, it must be dead. Jesus' ministry was defined by shrinking. He was really good at shrinking his ministry. He's going to shrink his ministry again because he's going to say, if you want to follow me, if you want to sign up and be my disciple, if you want to get on my train, if you want to, if you want to be part of what I'm doing, here's what you have to do. You have to deny yourself, which is to say you have to reject everything that your carnal, worldly, fleshly desires want, which mostly rule us. You have to take up your cross, which to us means nothing. But to the people of the day, as soon as he said the word cross, their minds would be triggered traumatically to pictures and sights that they had seen, to smells and and sounds that they'd seen walking into Roman-occupied cities where people were hanging, asphyxiated, in agonizing pain, bleeding naked on a stick to death. That's what Rome would do. They would stick you on a pole publicly naked while you couldn't breathe bleeding out with nails in your hands and your feet. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you got to go up there. And and we, we really shouldn't blunt that. We really shouldn't blunt that. Jesus is trying to be dramatic. He's trying to sort. He's trying to go, hey, if you want to follow me, you got to go to the cross. Now, for many of us, that's not a reality. It's an allegory. But for many of those who stood there that day, it was a reality. They would go to the cross. They would have their hands pierced. Within the first couple of years of the Holy Spirit showing up at Pentecost, we see martyrdom after martyrdom. James was martyred. Stephen was martyred. This was a reality for these guys. Jesus is saying, the cost of following me is that you have to take up your cross. Bonhoeffer, who knew very well the cross of Christ, he carried his own. Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he calls him, come and die. That is the call to the Christian life. I can't think of anything less popular. Come and die. Traumatically. You know the word agony was invented from the Greek word used to describe the cross? This is intense. And Jesus meant for it to be intense. But the key is not just the denial of self and it's not just the taking up of the cross. It's the follow me part. Because see guys, listen. Thousands of people were crucified. 
It doesn't mean they were disciples. Thousands of people denied themselves for bigger cause. Thousands of people have denied themselves to feed the hungry or go on trips or fight wars. And that's all good and that's all great. But Jesus says, it's not just the cross. It's not just self-denial. It's doing it for me. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone that does it for him, for Jesus. There were two thieves on either side of Jesus that were crucified that didn't make them disciples. What made you a disciple was your willingness to be crucified for him. For his sake. And then Jesus goes on with the paradox in 35. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I'm going to just brush through this stuff. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is kingdom economics. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, imagine that, that you're, you're, uh, all of your investment, all of your life, all of your stock, all of your 401k, all of your retirement is tied up in the economy of the United States. And then someone comes along and says, liquidate all of, liquidate all of that and invest that in the kingdom of Slibbledobbin. Oh, yeah, just liquidate it all and in, invest it in, I just made that up. Uh, it's not a real place. I know some of you guys are Googling it right now on your phone, like Slibbledobbin. No. Like you, you, it's insane. You, you, you want me to liquidate everything I want out of my life and invest it in some future other kingdom? Yes, that's the call. That's the call. It's not a question of what do I want. It's not a question of what do I want to do. It's not a question of what's easy. It's not a question of what do I feel like doing. It's a question of what has Jesus called you to do? What is the cross that he's called you to carry? It's an investment. And then verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. In other words, it's not just a matter of who you make of Christ. It's a matter of what you make of Christ. Jesus had a lot to say about that in terms of burying talents. So let me, let me synthesize this call to be a disciple down here. Jesus is saying five things. He's saying, first, you need to be willing to give up your physical security and comfort, a.k.a. the cross. He's saying you need to be willing to give up your identity, whatever the thing is that you think makes you you. You've got to be willing to give that up. He's saying you have to be willing to give up your time and experiences. That's your life, okay? Things you want to do, things you want to experience, and then lastly, he's saying you've got to give up the world, which is stuff and things, power, possession, position, pleasure, all those things must be given to him. Now, that doesn't mean that he's going to take them all, but it means that we say, Lord, they're yours. Now, what do we do with all this? Let me just wrap this up here. This text demands that we ask two questions about the cross. Because Jesus has just called us not only to embrace his cross, but to take up your own cross. Here's two questions we need to answer. Number one, why must we take up our cross? Why? Why must we take up our cross? Why can't we just avoid it? Why can't we just go straight, skip, go, do not, no, yeah, just, just get straight to heaven, right? Try to use a Monopoly reference there, and I, I butchered it. Why can't, why can't we just skip the cross and get right to the crown, right? Why can't we do that? Let me tell you why we must take up our cross. I want to go back to verse 25. Remember the story of Jesus healing the man in stages? I think the secret is here, okay? The, the, the secret is here. Um, Jesus heals him once. He says, what do you see? He says, I see people, but they look like trees. The healing wasn't effectual yet. It was partial. He couldn't see clearly yet. So what does Jesus do? He heals him again. But in the NASB, there's a particular nuance in the translation. 
Jesus says, then again, in verse 25, he laid his hands on his eyes, and the man, it says in the NASB, the man looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. Okay, what's my point? My point is, is that what the NASB helps us to see here is that this blind man, God healed his sight, God healed his vision, but then God had to heal his what? His focus. God healed his vision, but then God had to heal his focus. He could see, but he couldn't focus. He could see, but he couldn't focus. A second touch was needed. A second touch was necessary. Now, the question is, what is that second touch? What is the thing that gives us the clarity that we need, the clarity that we're longing for, the clarity that we're looking for? And the answer is the second touch is the path of the cross. That is the thing that gives us the clarity that we need. There is only one path that leads to true sight, and that is the path of the cross. It's only through the cruciform life. By the way, the word cruciform just means to take shape of the cross. It is only through the cruciform life that we relinquish our death grip on this world and endear our hearts to the superior riches of the Lord. Here's my point. The cross, we need to think of it not only as the payment for our sin, but as the process of our sanctification. Jesus didn't just call you to believe in the payment of the cross. He called you to the path of the cross. That is the path of the believer. And it is in that path of suffering. It's in that path of hardship. It's in that path of struggle that our eyes begin to learn to focus. When you get saved, God opens your eyes. When you get sanctified, God gives you the ability to focus. To focus, to learn. The cross is not only the center of our belief, it's the center of our practice. We live cross lives. We live cross-shaped lives. That is our goal as Christians. It's not to avoid suffering. It's to embrace the suffering that God calls us to walk through. That could look like illness. That could look like like having children that have rejected you. That could look like uh, pain in your marriage. That could look like your spouse not being what you want them to be. It could look like your kids saying they hate you. It could look like cancer. It could look like anything. Whatever the cross is, that is the path to clarity. And it is walking that path in the footsteps of your Lord Jesus that you will begin to see. I want to read a quote for you from a woman named Martha Snell Nicholson. This woman had no use of her limbs. She was a paraplegic. She couldn't move. She said, I stood begging God before his royal throne and asked him for one priceless gift, which I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn. It has pierced my heart. This is a strange and hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts. I gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. Listen, I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. Isn't that beautiful? Maybe you haven't experienced this yet, but suffering has a way of clarifying things for us, doesn't it? The people I admire the most, the most godly people, are people that have suffered immensely. People that have lost children, people that have chronic daily pain, and I watch their humility, and I watch their faith, and I watch the way that they abide in Christ, they cling to Jesus. He's all that they have. 
And I go, that's the side I want. That's the second touch. That's where things start to go from blurry trees to clear. But see, we don't want the suffering. Well, who does? Nobody likes it. Jesus didn't want the cross. He asked the Father, can I get, can I get around it? And the answer was no, because there's only one way to the crown, and it's through the cross. Now, the, the more important question you might be asking is, okay, Sam, so my suffering gives me this clarity into, into understanding something about the Lord. How? How do I take up my cross? How do I do this? How do I want to do this? I want to give you three ways. Three ways that you can take up your cross every day. Number one, by setting your sights on the superior joy that lays on the other side of the cross. Where do I get this idea? I get it from Jesus, our Lord, our example. Hebrews 12, chapter, or chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Listen, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Ask the question, what was it that put Jesus on the cross? He didn't have to go there. Nobody made him go there. He chose to go there. He put himself on the cross. He could have called down angels at any point. What put Jesus on the cross? Why, when he is in the garden, sweating drops of blood, asking the Father to release this from him, did he say, okay, I submit? Hebrews tells us it was the joy that was set before him. You were made for joy. Don't ever sell yourself short. You were made for joy. Superior joy. Not earthly joy, not temporal joy, not sinful joy, not sensual joy. Eternal joy. And Jesus, our faith example, ran his race with joy set before him. He went through the cross because he was looking at the crown on the other side of the cross. What was the crown? The crown was the praise and the love of the Father. That was the crown. This is why Peter was a coward outside of the courtyard of the high priest. Because Peter wasn't looking to the joy. He was looking to the disappointment. He felt like Jesus had somehow failed. Peter had not yet experienced superior, the superior joy of surrender because he was still consumed by the inferior joy of self. And Peter learned through a cross life, he learned how to see things clearly. And that is why he says, again, in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised by fiery trials when they come to test you, as though something strange has happened to you. Listen to what he says. But rejoice. Rejoice insofar that you were counted worthy to share Christ's suffering. The word for share is koinonia. That's fellowship. You become, listen, you become part of the community, the timeshare of the cross of Christ when you suffer. Any cross that Jesus calls you to pick up, and you pick it up, you become now part of the timeshare of Jesus' pain. And you have the clarity that Jesus had. You have the perspective that Jesus had. You become part of the koinonia of the suffering of Christ. He says, and if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's a beautiful reality. So how can we take up our cross? By looking at the joy on the other side. Number two, how can we take up our cross? Listen, little by little. 
one cross moment and one cross decision at a time. See, we think about the cross, we think there's going to be this one moment, right? This one moment, and maybe there will be. But let's be real. The cross for every believer is not one moment. It's thousands of moments. It's every morning when you, your kids wake you up earlier than you want to wake up, and you have to make a decision whether to yell at them or to show grace. It's every moment where you are asked to do something at work that you don't feel like doing, and you want to mouth off to your boss, and you go, no, what is the cross here? The cross would be to be humble and kind and not ruin my witness with my boss. The cross is every time your husband or your wife or your kids disappoint you and you want to cut them with words and instead you say no. The cross is every time you wake up in the morning and your back is so hurting so bad you can barely go to work and you say, Lord, how am I supposed to do this? He would say, this is the cross for you. You do it with me. You do it for me. You do it with me in mind. And every little cross road, every little cross decision gives us more cross clarity. And the little crosses lead to the big crosses. I would pray that if I was ever put in a position where I was willing to give my life for the faith, that I would. But if I can't even give my morning for the faith, what makes me think I would give my life for the faith? If I can't even give up my comfort for five minutes to the cross, what makes me think I would give my life to the cross, right? We practice in the small things. And the more cross we live, the more cross clarity we have. And I'll end here. One last point. How can we take up our cross? By believing. This is super important. Don't check out. By believing that Jesus carried the cross that only he could carry so that you and I can carry the cross that only you and I are asked to carry. Do you notice what Jesus doesn't say? He doesn't say, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself and take up my cross. That's not what he says. What does he say? He says, deny yourself and take up your cross. No one in here has the same cross. Everyone in here has a different cross. Your job is to carry the cross that you have. And here's where we go wrong. We try to carry Jesus' cross. We get frustrated because we can't carry it. It's too heavy. So what do we do? We walk away. You were never called to carry Jesus' cross. Jesus carried the weight of the world on his shoulders. Jesus was the one that came to to deal with the systemic and, and global issues of this world. He's the one who can fix the thing that you can't fix. Your job isn't to fix it. Your job isn't to take the cross that bears the sin of the world. Your job is just to say yes to Christ tomorrow and today. And whatever cross he's given you to carry, that's your job, little by little. And I would suggest to you that the more that you believe that he has carried his cross well and completely, the easier it will be for you to carry your cross every day. Amen? So I want to ask you the same question that Jesus asked the blind man. What do you see? What do you see? Do you see things clearly? Do you see things clearly? And I would suggest to you that the job of the believer is to let the cross that Jesus has picked for you and I shape and give clarity to our sight as that second touch. Amen?